Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Harlan Coben has sold 70 million books. That's a staggering number. You would think that he might be Uh, full of himself. You would be wrong. Harlan Coben is pretty much the sweetest, most down-to-earth guy you will ever run across. He's living a dream life. He's thinking up stories. He's going around promoting his books in different places, but mostly he's hanging out in his beautiful house in northern New Jersey, being a dad, loving up his dog. He's a cool guy. He's funny. He's sweet. You're going to find all of this out shortly. What I was surprised to learn was that he has so many good stories just about the, you know, the funny, weird little way that one can go from being, you know, like a young basketball playing smart kid to being a wildly successful novelist. And one really cool thing that you will discover during the course of this conversation is that no matter how successful you are, you still find ways to drive yourself. You still find reasons to be hungry. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I know I did. I'm a mystery thriller nerd. When I dropped out of college, uh, gave up my creative writing scholarship My primary dream was to someday find a way to segue from this weird music job into writing thrillers and mysteries. That's still an unrealized dream, but I really feel like after sitting down with Harlan Coben and picking his brain, I am one giant step closer. This guy's very inspiring, and his his ideas and his advice is incredibly useful. I hope you enjoy this episode of Wheels Off with Harlan Coben. So we're here on Wheels Off with Harlan Coben. Welcome, Harlan. Great. It's great to finally meet you in person, man. I know. I, I feel know. like I know you. And this is something that probably happens with people that read your books, which I think I've read all of them. Wow. But, um, you know, it's like you've been in my ears and audiobooks and in my eyes for so long. I feel like I know you, but yeah. you're not Myron Bolitar. You're Harlan Coben, and we're here in northern New Jersey <laughs> in your backyard. So everybody listening, you'll hear trains and cars and stuff. But right. You yeah, can we're right it. on the main road in beautiful Ridgewood, New Jersey. You can hear the train I love it. whistle going off. Yeah, we're, we're, in, we're in Americana here, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what creative project are you working on right now, and how is it? inspiring you um i'm trying to do two or three at the same time i used to i used to just write my novels mm-hmm. and i think i just finished the boy in the woods comes out in march that's the next one standalone novels and i do series also and that's my 32nd novel i think wow 32nd i know it's huh. like 
impossible to imagine. And a few years ago, I started to get into doing more of the TV world as well. So um, I'm working on the novel after The Boy from the Woods. Um, I'm working on, I'm finished doing the finishing touches on The Stranger, which will be on Netflix in early 2020. Yeah. Working on, um, with that I had, a, I did a lot with. I'm not doing very much with it, but there's a Polish version of my novel, The Woods, Netflix Poland is going to do. Which means it's great because it'll be dubbed or, or, um, you know, subtitled here in America too. Yeah. So you can watch it here, you know, and the Polish audience gets it in their language. And I have a Netflix Spain show called, based off my novel, The Innocent, yeah. which is also going on right now. So those are some of the projects and then trying to develop some other ones that I'm working on besides the, no the new novel. Is it possible for different territories to do the same? Like, have you had a book right. where like Poland will do it and Spain will do it and you'll have different... Because I think how interesting would it be yeah. to see the interpretations and what the... What they, have you had that happen yet? I have. I know, I know um, uh, Netflix just did that with some show, um, I forget what it's called right now, where they did the same show in various countries and languages. Um, they haven't done that with mine yet. I don't think they necessarily would. I'm not sure I would, I would love it. You know? yeah. um, but I've, I, I had a movie, a French movie called Tell No One, made a number of years mm -hmm. ago in French. And we've been trying to remake that into an American movie forever. And frankly, every script that I see or every idea that I see is going to ruin what was kind of a legendary movie within France. So part of me likes the idea, part of me doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right around, I, I'm always rather work on something kind of new or, or change it around and do something different. Yeah, it's funny. I think about um, one of my early heroes as a reader um, uh, was Elmore Leonard. Yeah. And I, I name dropped him in a song and ended up corresponding with him a little bit in the 90s. And such a funny, sweet, generous guy. But yep. he was talking a lot because it was right around when they were making, they they had just made Get Shorty. And he right. was he was going to the premiere of that. But he got to watch a lot of his books get made into multiple different entities. And a right. lot of like he was pretty upset because a lot of them weren't great. And, right. And um, but it seems like you've had pretty good luck. I mean, so far I have none that I can complain about. But part of that has been that I've been actively involved in them, so I can't really whine. Yeah. Um. That's, that's part of it. The other thing is I have a slightly different interpretation, I think, than most authors do, where I don't think an adaptation, I think the worst adaptations, let me say, are slavishly devoted to the text. I don't be I believe a book is a book and a movie is a movie. Um, so, you know, I, I tell no one I moved the whole story to France. I changed, we changed a lot of things around. I did another French show called No Second Chance where I, in the book, the lead character was a man. I turned it in, into a woman. And in fact, The Stranger, which will be the one that's coming out on, on Netflix um, next, early next year, I changed the actual character of The Stranger, who's not the lead character, but a, a major character, again, from a man um, into a woman. Um, it also made him biracial, made her biracial, yeah. I should say. And I love that. I like changing, because one's a visual medium and one is not. And so I think the problem is if you get too locked into into having to be like the book. I think about my favorite my favorite adaptations, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, L.A. Confidential. They really weren't like the books. Um, so I'm open to really making changes, adding things, subtracting things, making it a, a very different story. How much have you been involved with The Stranger? Is that a writer's a room deal? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm technically speaking creator and executive producer. Um, so I would say it's done differently because we did it over in England. Uh, I would I would say that um, I'm, I'm lead writer with a guy named Danny Brocklehurst, 
Um, and then we also have writers who did single episodes, but he and I and another guy outlined it all. So we were the writer's room. One or two people were the, were the writer's room. And then we had different people, um, do different episodes and then we rewrite them. And then That's how, the how many episodes is that? Is it, it's a mini series. It's eight. Yeah. Eight. That, I so, always do mini series. I, I mean, I guess technically if I, there could be a, a season two, but I hate, I don't <laughs> think it's fair yeah. to make people watch eight or 10 episode crime thriller. And then not ended. Ended on a cliffhanger. So you got to watch next season. That's just not fair. No. And it's not what I do. So I, I make them very much like the novels. There's a solid ending. I don't really have an interest in the season two. And I tell the actors, you know, this is why you, you just do this. Give it your all. We're not coming back for a season two. And if we do, it probably won't be all of you anyway. So um, I, I just, that's a more creative way for me to do it. It's, well, it's, and it goes along with the 32 novels you've written. And I feel as, as a reader of yours... For years, I really feel like you're so good at endings, and and I don't. I hope this doesn't sound like a backhanded compliment, but you've only gotten better at them. Thank like, you. I'm, I really feel like. Are, are you? Do you still do Myron books every like third or fourth book? Yeah, whenever I'm in the mood. Okay, yeah. <laughs> whenever the mood strikes me. God, but the most recent, and I obviously won't Home. say anything yeah. too much about it, but yeah, the ending of Home was so beautiful oh, in a thanks, weird man. way. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know. Obviously, I can't get into it too much without spoiling anything for right. anybody. But you get you take characters who are on paper unlikable, and you give them a lot of depth. Where the reader is suddenly really like kind of feeling feelings for like someone who's maybe kind of a bad person. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've always tried to uh, to work on my villains. And I use the word villains with a with quotation mark on sure. it, so that you can almost see yourself doing the crime. Where if a little something had gone wrong in your own life, yeah. And now, as, a, as reality intrudes, I realize I'm working much too hard on my villains. Yeah. <laughs> because people are just evil assholes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. It's just like I never wanted that kind of a character. And now it's like, I've been na- I was naive to how awful human beings are. Uh, this last few years have been, have been eye-opening, where I try, I've tried to, to give my villains sort of complicated reasons for what they do so that you love them. Um, and so that they are as important as, as the heroes. And like uh, in reality, it doesn't quite work that that way. No. <laughs> Maybe being unrealistic. I, I know, but I think we look to fiction for that, right? We look yeah, to, I hope to so. make sense out of the I chaos. So. Yeah, well, I used to. I never liked, you know, I never was a. I loved the Hannibal Lecter stuff, but I was. It's not something I write. I don't write a serial killer who hacks up people for no sure. reason. It's just not what I do. But. Um, you know, maybe that's easier. I don't know. Did you ever uh, read West Lake's uh, Richard, uh, the Richard Stark, the Richard books, Stark books, Parker yeah, books? Yeah, the Parker books, sure. Oh my God! Well, yeah. that, that's a pretty good example. He's a of great, an yeah, great antihero. And, and and win in my Myron Bolitar books is is something of an antihero. Well, it's, yeah, that's um, sort of who I think about when I think about characters of yours that I yeah that you you approach one way to begin with as the reader, and then eventually, like you know, I really like Win. Yeah, that's that's it's sort of the fun and the challenge. And uh, Don Westlake was a, was a was a dear friend as well, and I miss really? him greatly. But what a wonderful writer! He could do so much. You know, a lot of those guys from that era who I met when I first when I was first coming up, I met uh, Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block and Ed McBain, um, James Crumley, and Elmore Leonard, and you know Sue Grafton, and Sarah Paretsky. And they're so good. And they could do so many different things, you know. It was really kind of remarkable. I think Westlake and, and Lachlan told me a story that they were playing poker one night with a couple of the writers, and during the poker game, they wrote. In those days, they had they, they had those kind of they had these porn novels. Yeah, yeah. 
And so when one of them was cycled out, they would, that person would sit and write a chapter in a porn novel. <laughs> and by the end of the night, they had a whole porn novel done that they sold. That's so, so funny. Yeah, you get to see them doing that. Uh, Lawrence Block has a great book called Writing the Novel that's from yeah. like 78. Yeah. But he talks a lot about his early days writing, but he's like uh, softcore lesbian right. books. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy. I, yeah. I mean, I wonder if that even, those, that kind of apprenticeship is probably gone now. I think so. I think so. <laughs> right. But also that kind of, you know, that's where he, you know, they, the, those guys cut their teeth. I think the market's a lot harder now. And I was able to cut my teeth. I mean, my first New York Times bestseller was Tell No One. Mm -hmm. That was my 10th book. Wow. Yeah, it was my 10th book. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like an overnight success kind of thing. So I'm not sure, you know, today I'll get an email from somebody saying, you know, I've self-published two books. How come I'm not selling like you and Patterson? Uh. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't, I'm not saying they have to learn the blah, blah, blah. But I do think it was a, a, a more helpful time in publishing where we knew a lot less, which was valuable. A lot information is not necessarily always a good thing. You know, um, my first Myron Bolotar books were paperback originals. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not published in hardcover. I received an advance of five thousand dollars for the first two, and I thought I was the cat's ass. You know. <laughs> Because there's no Amazon rankings, there's no online, I had no idea, I was like, you know, nothing. I would go in a bookstore, I would find maybe two paperback copies of it. I thought I had the world by its tail. If I knew the odds of then making it, I probably would have killed myself, you mm. know what I mean? Or done something drastic, but I didn't. I thought I was doing great, and I just kept moving up that ladder. Uh, how old were you when those came out? And like, like how, how long, how far into um, a career in knowing that this is what you were going to do was that point. Like, did you know this really early? Was there an epiphany moment for you? It was never, there's still not. I mean, part of being a writer, and I'm sure it's the same with a musician, is mm -hmm. you always think you suck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, only good writers, only bad writers think they're good. You know, um, I have one of the great, most flattering things that ever happened to me, so I'm going to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm trying not to, I'm trying, there's a point to the story. But uh, Stephen King's uh, book last year called The Outsiders, mm -hmm. So um, he had me as a character. Wow. So he calls me and he says, I want to use you as a character. Do you mind? I'm like, yeah, right, I mind. <laughs> this is like the most flattering thing that's ever happened to me. But even, So Steve says, I'm going to send you the book. I just want you to read it to make sure you're okay with it. So the first thing I did, of course, when I got it was ego search, find out where my name was. Mm -hmm. So I put it in the search engine and it says 62 mentions. I'm like, what the fuck? And so I, I, you know, I read the book and he, I could tell, like Steve was like nervous about my reaction. I'm thinking... No, you're Stephen King. <laughs> he's, but, he, but he's still that same way too. And he, and, you know, that we have all, I think when you lose that feeling, that's when you start to really do suck. The author who says, yeah, I got it all under control. I got it. Um, that's the guy who, who's in a lot of trouble. So I always have that doubt in my mind. I always think, um, that I suck. So that's the first, an that's the first answer. I started, my first book came out with a very small press and I was 28. Um, the Myron Boltars came out, I guess, maybe two or three years later, four years later, early 30s. And my first New York Times bestseller was, I remember the date very, very well. It was July 11th, 2001, because it was also the day my fourth child was born. Wow. I was 39 years old. That's a good day. Four kids under the age of seven. Wow. So now I knew I could pay for their <laughs> college educations and stuff. It was a big day. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. God, I, when you're talking about people who believe their own hype, and I think about, there's a guy that produced a record for me that I really love, John Bryan, and he said something once about an Irish singer who shall not be named, but he said, uh, oh, that guy, he should be shot with balls of his own shit. 
And I just, I kind of like that because it's like, there are people who, yeah. the, speaking of ego search, that'll right. go home every night with a right. buzz on and just look to see who's saying what about them. Right. Live their whole life by that. Right. I mean, so to me, like, obviously you've been validated for years and, right. and, um, and it's, it's nice that you still push yourself with some self-doubt or whatever, but was there a time, like maybe before that bestseller, when you really like had inner voices that were telling you, you, you really suck and you've got to stop and get a job? I mean, did you have to overcome sort of self-generated obstacles? Well, first of all, I did have a job from when I graduated college in 84 until 1992. I had a mm-hmm. full-time job. So Doing I was what? actually published, I was in the travel industry, which is a, it's a business run by my family. Uh, my grandfather and my mother sort of started it, and it'd be much too long to explain, but there was a huge family squabble, and I suddenly, thank goodness, I was actually fired from it. Um, because I kept saying I wanted to be a writer, and I had already, I did have two novels published, but I kept saying to myself, you know, the money's pretty decent, one more year, one more year, one more year. So when I was sort of thrown out, it ended up being a great thing for me. Um, the other thing is, and I, I, I don't know about everybody else out there, but it really does help to have a super supportive spouse, someone who does believe. So when I was fired, I, I had a, a job offer in Stanford, Connecticut, which would have paid pretty nicely. And I was going to take it, you know, it's just starting to have young kids. And I said to my wife, I just want to give this writing thing a year or two. Give it just a, just a try before I do that route. And I don't, I'm not sure every wife at the time, we just bought a house in Ridgewood, not this one, another one. And I'm not sure every wife would have been quite as okay with what I tried to do because it wasn't a lot of lean years. Yeah. I had enough money from the other job for a couple of years, but it was a quite a risk. And, um, you know, reaching, frankly, best-selling, it's like, it's really like winning a lottery ticket or being a pro athlete. You know, it's, it's a lot of luck involved and you don't really expect it. I never really expected it. If you had told me I'd be sitting here in this stage of my career at this level, I would have never believed it back then. Never in a zillion years would I believed it. But, you know, so that, that also helps. Um, that kind of hunger helps. But the other thing that, Two points with that. One is, I wouldn't necessarily quit your day job if you want to be a writer or a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you you can find the time. And if you can't find the time, it means there's things that are more important in your life other than writing. And so you're not meant to be a writer or a musician. Fine. Get on with your life. But there's always time. Yeah. Mary Higgins Clark, who lives right down the street, close friend of mine. So Mary, when she was 38 years old, this is going back a long time, Mary's over 90 now, um, had five kids and her husband dies of a heart attack. The next day... Her mother-in-law also dies. So Mary, way back then, which is 50-plus years ago, is left a widow raising five kids on her own. She had, she had to get a full-time job, get her kids to school, do all that. So Mary would write from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. So don't tell me you don't have time to write. Yeah. Right? Don't tell me that. Yeah. You have time to write. You just have things in your life that are more important to you than writing. That's fine. But then you're not meant to be a writer or a musician or whatever else. Did you, in those early days, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear... You talk about these people, all of whom, you know, I think are just like on some pantheon with you of great writers. But it's cool because to you, they're people that are contemporaries yep. or, you know, whatever, maybe, you know, peers, but uh, who started before you. Yep. Um, did you start out with like writers groups? Did you get together with people and share chapters and manuscripts and all that kind of stuff? I mean, was there was there support beyond just sitting around and going, holy shit, what, what am I doing? No, not in terms of writing. In terms of career, yes. As soon as I was published, those people that I've mentioned, people like Mary Higgins Clark, uh, Elmore Leonard, Lawrence Block, Donald Westlake, Ed McBain, those, uh, Sue Grafton, 
they were, they're, it's a ridiculously supportive community, the crime wedding community. Still is. Yeah. With my contemporaries who are more Lee Child, Michael Conley, Laura Littman, Lisa Scottolini, I could go, I could sit here yeah. people all day. We're all really close. And I think our attitude has always been more that this is a boat that rises and falls together rather than, you know, look, if you read a Michael Conley book and love it, it just means you want to read more so you'll buy a Harlan Coben book. Yeah. So Michael and I don't compete against each other. It's not like you're only going to buy Michael and not me, right? <laughs> so, and I don't know if it's the same in music or not, but it's certainly this, that way. Um, and that's the attitude that we have in the crime community. It's always been a supportive community. It's always been a community that sends the elevator back down yeah. um, to help others out. That's just the way that was. But in terms of the actual process of writing, I've never gone to one of those guys and said, I have an idea, let's discuss it. I've never sent one of them a chapter in my book and asked them for their opinion on it. I've never gotten together with them. We discuss our families. We discuss the business. We discuss everything else. But we, I've never really discussed my work, and they've never really discussed their work with them. Well, it's like that's the art, right? Right. Because the rest of it is the stuff that, like for me in music, I'm not great at knowing publishing or the record label stuff, you know? And so it's good. I talk to musicians about it. Right. It's funny. I think about that all the time, though, the concept of, like, it's not a pie with a finite number of pieces, right. you know? It's like a tide that's rising all boats. Right. And I do think there's a lot of that in music, but it's like the same guy that should be shot with balls of his own shit. I think there are people right. that see it as competition, and right. they think they have to bring everyone else down to get their themselves up. Right, but, but I, none of the guys that i friendly with. I mean, there are a couple, and yeah. they're assholes, and we know who they are. <laughs> the same, usually the same people who will say, I'm a really good writer, versus the rest of us who have those, those doubts. You know, there's a few, few like that, there's a few sunshines, but very, very few. Yeah. Very, very few. And did did you study? Did you go to school for writing? Was there an MFA in your past? Uh, no. Interestingly enough, I went to Amherst College, which uh-huh. was in Massachusetts. It's a, it's a school of 400 kids a grade at the time when I was there. And yet, in while I was there, David Foster Wallace was there, Dan Brown was there, um, Chris Bojallian, who writes Midwives and, and The Flight Attendant, was there, Susanna Grant, who just wrote that TV show with the Unbelievable Believable, the one on HBO, along with a number of movies, was there. Bill Amon, who did Foxtrot Comics, was there. Mark Costello, who wrote The Big Gift, which is National Book Award Finals, was there. It's sort of amazing. In fact, wow. I lived my freshman year next door to David Foster Wallace. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a strange sort of time. But I was not, and a number of us were not, uh, writing majors. But what I did learn there uh, was I was not meant to take tests. So what I did <laughs> is I real, But the way, way to do that was political science, history, and American studies. So those are the classes that I took with some wonderful professors who really challenged you on critical thinking. And I never took after first semester any classes that were tests because I could always, frankly, I was lazy, and I could always get away with writing a paper and a minimum get a B plus on it. You know what I mean? So uh, even if I didn't do all of the reading and all of that. So I learned how to write creatively and creative thinking by, by doing that. Um, but I did not, there's no, I did not do a lot of English classes. I did not take any MFAs, nothing like that. Mm. Do you feel like the, did your interactions with David Wallace, yeah. uh, did, um, was he an inspiring guy to be around? He was. Well, it's funny, David in college, not necessarily, but I would, you know, I, 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 really, I knew David after college too. But this is a funny story I tell about David. So David was a genius beyond all measure, as everybody now knows. But of course, I didn't know that freshman year. I'm going to Amherst College. <laughs> Which is a lot of really smart people. And yeah. I got in, frankly, because I played basketball. That's just yeah. the truth. I had good grades, don't get me wrong, but I was on the basketball team. So freshman year, I'm taking introduction to poli-sci, political science with David. And 
first paper, read our first paper, and I got, I think, a B or B minus on it. And I'm walking back to my room with David. And I said, Dave, Dave, what'd you get in the paper? And he kind of shy. I I got an A. I'm like, look, I just read your paper because I'm curious what an A paper was like. <laughs> I read this paper. I go, oh my God, I'm going to fail out of here. How did I only get a B minus on this? How did I, I thought everybody was as smart as David Foster Wallace. I was so intimidated by that because it was pure genius. The paper was like, you know, it was, it was David. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so out of my league here. Thank God I learned quickly that David was the smartest guy that I would ever know. Kind of an outlier. Yeah. So, but David and I used to see each other a fair amount. And I have this hilarious letter that he wrote me when I when I published my first um, novel, congratulating me on it. And to give you an idea, if I can find the letter, I'll show you to you later. But one of the things David did was so David typed the hand, you know, he typed the letter up. This is in the late '80s, I guess. And um, he wrote a paragraph about my my now wife and my girlfriend back then. And he wrote like something: "Are you still with Anne?" I know you two were close or something like that. And then he crossed that in pencil so it's clear to see. And he draws a line saying, oh, my God, how insensitive. Suppose she broke your heart. I wish I had white out. But he left it in there. You know what I mean? Like it was clear as a death. That was, and the last line of his, his thing was, uh, wait till, you, you know, you're, you're going to get reviews from Publishers Weekly. And Publishers Weekly reviews make my ass wet. That's the last line of the, of the letter. So um, he was an incredible guy. I, I miss him. I miss him greatly. We had wonderful conversations about the writing process. Remember one other quick thing when we were back, both back in Amherst for one of the reunions, he was writing at the time The Infinite Jest. I don't think he had titled it yet. And we were doing a reading together. And we're in the back room before the reading. He says to me, dude, you know how to end the novel. How do I end this? I don't know how to end the novel. You gotta help me end the novel. So, you know, and of course that was his thing. He just kept writing. You know, he had that (laughs) manic, brain, but he was sort of uh, complaining about it to me um, back then. But anyway, I miss him greatly. What a tremendous loss, but, you know, what a tremendous you know, illness. Um, you know, that's where I really learned that suicide is an illness. It's not, it's like having cancer. Yeah. The depression you had, and I didn't quite get that, I, you know, just 10 years ago, David, 11 years ago, and David, uh, 10 or 11 years ago, and David um, committed suicide. That's when I really started to get that it wasn't just, it wasn't really a choice. Or something like that, that it's an illness. And, and, and so, you know, one of his close friends I was talking to about it was saying, um, you know, it's more like he had cancer for a long time and was almost mercifully died rather than looking at it like, you know, the tragedy. It is a tragedy, but in a different kind of a way. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that I feel like in your novels you are really. Um, gentle with, I, I don't know, I think there's, it's really brave the way you deal with emotions and the way mm-hmm. you confront um, people's feelings. Like, and especially in crime fiction, I feel like it's pretty rare to show, like, uh, even especially maybe a man being mm-hmm. vulnerable. And, right. and I just, I feel like, I think that's really something beautiful that you, is that something intentional? Is that like... I mean, I feel like it's a gift you're giving the world. Like, hey, guess what? I'm going to write a bestseller, and you're going to really feel good about thinking about, you know, the way you love your kid. Like, I feel like that's a big thing that comes through in a lot of your novels. And it's really beautiful. I mean, it must be something that you, I mean, I'm not sure how to ask this question, but that's something that you do on purpose, right? Yeah. You love your kids. Yep. You think that that's a priority, right? Well, when I was first writing the Myron Bolotar series, which is a crime series, that's clearly influenced by old Raymond Chandler and, and Spencer and, and Robert Parker and, and those kind of guys. You know, I always joked about those guys. Ninety percent of you know crime writers admit that they're an influence, and ten percent lie. Um, 
but I wanted to really update it and make it more modern. So I wanted to look at my own life and what I felt in my own life that I felt would be different. You know, Raymond Chandler had the quote about his characters walking down these mean streets alone. Myron goes nowhere alone. Yeah. You know, he lives in his parents' basement for the first several books. He has Wynne, he has Esperanza, he has Big Cindy. Um, and the other thing was, and uh, this is probably, th this is what really um, influences me more than anything else in my fiction. I lost both of my parents at a fairly young age. Mm -hmm. My dad was 59, my mom was approximately 60. I say approximately because her actual age was a secret that the Pentagon wishes they could have somebody keep as well as my mother kept her actual age a secret. And so if I ever reveal her, one of her last requests was not to put her birth date on her tombstone because she would come back and haunt me. So around, let's just say around 60, my dad was 59, and both were devastating blows to me because I love my parents. I really love them unconditionally. And I'd never seen that in crime fiction. I'd always seen you know, the dad was abusive, the mother was an alcoholic. So I gave Myron that. And I... I created a wish fulfillment for me in the Myron Bolotar novels where Myron has the relationship with his parents. I imagine I would be having had my parents survive. So my parents died. Myron goes through all the stuff of aging parents that I never had to deal with. His mother's now has Parkinson's. His dad's yeah. not feeling quite as well as the series has gone on. And so I probably get melodramatic and even overwrite the scenes with his parents, but tough. I, you know, that's, I think that's what makes the, the novels a little different. Yeah. And I do try to add a lot of heart. Um, I sell a lot of books in France, and so they always ask me why I do well in France, and I don't know the answer, but one of the French critics said it's because um, thrillers are not just thrillers, but they always have heart in them. So it's always hard for me to say something like that, um, but I, I do try to have that, and I do love my own, and I, you know, family is the most important thing here. I, mean, I think it's the most important thing to most people. Um, so it's easier for me to kind of tune into that. It's funny we talk about Dave Wallace because um, uh, I, I got to interview Tom Wolfe years ago, mm -hmm. and um, and he uh, was going on and on about postmodernism and how much he hated that right. as a literary sort of movement at the time. Right. And um, and we brought up David Foster Wallace, and my argument was that he is sets himself apart from the rest of that genre. Because there is so much heart at yeah. the center of what he wrote, and I—I I mean, I guess I feel like that about your work in the thriller genre. Just there is, there's so much heart, and it's really beautiful. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, if you were to go back to your younger self, if you yeah. well known, if you were a 21 year old now, yeah. in today's world, um, which is probably you know a lot different from even from when I was 21, um, you were 21. What would you? What advice would you give yourself? Boy, it's always funny, you know, I'm one of those, it's meant to be as it's meant to be. So if I ever went back, like, I made so many mistakes career-wise along the way, but those mistakes led me to here. So I would want to make those same mistakes all over again. Yeah. I wouldn't want to warn that 21-year-old kid away from, from anything. Because I, I did a lot of things wrong in my career, but it ended up working out um, the best for me. So it, there's not much advice I would give. I actually feel sorry, you know, I have kids, one of my sons is 21, I have, hmm. a, son, I have a son 22, one, one's going to be 21 in March. I think it's a much, I think actually, I think it's, a, it's for the first generation, it's a harder world for today's youth than it was for people of my generation or your generation. I think it's harder to come up now. We had a, we had a little bit more, in a sense, we were more rigid, had more rules, and so it was easier to break out of those rules and know where you were going. There's almost, there's too much out there. I think, you know, the social media shit is just such a detriment to everything that we do. I mean, I have to fight this, too. 
Um, there's so many more distractions uh, in terms of being a writer and things like that. Um, you know, when I was going out, you, you went to, into two or three different career paths. But then if you looked in the secret life, really is looking in the periphery. I don't know how long did you always want to be a musician? Did you always yeah. know you were going to be a musician? Yeah. So it wasn't the same for me in writing. I kind of didn't know what I was going to do. So I applied to law school. And I was going to go to the University of Chicago Law School. And my grandfather talked me out of it. He knew I wanted to write and, decided, and he needed help with his, with his business. But you know, when I was in Amherst, there's like three or four directions you went in, and then you looked in the periphery. I kind of think that, in a way, helped by having this sort of... Not, not like every kid comes out and they think, you know, I'll, I'll form a podcast, I'll be an <laughs> artist or whatever else. But in a way, you, you have to be sort of... You know, most of the successful writers I know were lawyers first or were journalists first. You know, Michael Connolly worked at the L.A. Times for a year. Lee Child had a career at Granada Television in a, in a non-creative role for years. Uh, Laura Littman was at the Baltimore Sun for years. I think it almost kind of helps to ha to be forced into something with structure and then break away from it in terms of writing. In terms of music, you guys seem to get it earlier than we do in writing. Yeah, I mean, because it's a more youth, it's a youth movement. The other beautiful thing, though, about writing is, you know, um, the big book this year is When the Crawdads Sings by Delia Owens. Delia Owens is 70 years old, and she hit it. How fucking awesome is that? That's amazing. Right. It's not like being a basketball player where when you're 20, it's over for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not gonna, you know you're not going to make it. But if anybody out there is listening, you're 40, 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, and you got a story to tell, tell it. Because it's not, it's not a muscle you're losing. Yeah. So that's the beauty of that. Um, I, I, growing up, I had two dreams. You know, I knew music was a big part of it, but I also dreamt of writing fiction. And um, I kept looking at the Kurt Vonnegut story, right? That he sold vacuum cleaners right. and he wrote for newspapers. Obviously, he was, uh, was in the war. But he didn't have his first novel with Slaughterhouse-Five was he was in his 40s. So I kept right. telling myself, okay, music's a young man's game, and then they kick you out at a certain point. Right. For, but the weird thing happened where they haven't kicked me out yet. Right. But, um, but yeah, so I kept telling myself, okay, if I, I can do, uh, I can write fiction later. So that's, that's my dream. The other thing is that music is so changed. Like, I remember when I was in high school, high school, so I think it was 1979, 1980, and the, the final Who concert yeah. at Madison Square Garden was gone. <laughs> and we all to send in, we sent in a $100 check to get four tickets, mm. and you got in a waiting list. I didn't actually get one of the tickets to it. But now they're still playing. I mean, if you told me that I'd be digging, like that Bruce Springsteen would be at a career high, in my opinion, at the age of 70. I mean, Western Stars is genius. Yeah. It's genius. It's one of the best albums he's ever done. So it's really nice, frankly, that you musicians who you would have thought, you know, be dead by 30 or 40 or whatever, um, are still doing it. it it's, it's kind of awesome, really, to have that, have that, uh, have that sort of, I mean, your business has gone really has had a lot more trouble than my business has yeah. had. We learned a lot from watching how your business went, I think, um, in terms of pirating and things like that, that that didn't happen in our business. But it really isn't, um, it's certainly not too late for you to write. Uh, you know, you, I know you're starting to write books and things mm -hmm. like that a little bit. And if you have a story to tell, you know, it's, it is sort of a, it is despite what everybody says, and yeah, they have that keys to the kingdom and all that crap, but it's still a meritocracy too. If yeah. it's good enough, I really do believe there's a very good chance we find. Not 100%. Right, you can send me all the examples of that undiscovered genius, and I know it's you. But <laughs> most of the time, you'll be, you, you, if it's good enough, someone will read it and respond to it. Um, I, I will only ask you this because, for selfish reasons. Um, when I dropped out of college, I, I became something of an autodidact and read all of those books. Like, like I talk about the Lawrence Block, right. writing the novel books. All of those books, maybe out of guilt. But I wonder... 
if you've ever read any of those books and if you think that they are helpful on the whole or if they can create sort of a paralysis like holy shit there's all these rules how would i ever follow them what can i do the writing guide books yes mean? yeah my favorite one is bird by bird by Anne lamont yeah mostly because it's not necessarily an instructional book but it gives you an idea of the insecurity of being a writer and the doubts that you have and my favorite part of it which is advice that i give people all the time too she has a chapter called the shitty first draft <laughs> which is the, the hardest part is to turn off the part of your brain that tells you you suck because I just mentioned I still think I suck every day, right? Yeah. I have What I've learned to do is just push through it. Write it and think, okay, it sucks. You'll see how it looks tomorrow. And the next day, it usually doesn't suck as bad as you thought it sucked. The secret of writing is to write. I know that sounds weird, but there's days that I'm feeling pretty good about writing. And like there's a, you know, oh, a voice on my, the muse is a gentle voice in my shoulder. But most days I have a case of mental constipation that can kill a horse. <laughs> every word is a struggle. The voice is not the voice of an angel, it's more the voice of my mother. What? You don't want to be with me? You'd rather be out with friends? You know, whiny, you know, and, and that kind of a voice. But what I have found is when I look at my book now, I can't tell you what I wrote in the good days, what I wrote in the bad days. I can't tell you what I forced out when I was completely exhausted and what I wrote when I was fresh. Because when you rewrite, it all becomes the same. And some days the stuff that you wrote, and again, I'm sure it's the same with music, and tell me if it's not, the stuff that you wrote that you were tired, that you went to bed thinking in the morning, I'm going to hate this thing, ends up being some of the best stuff you ever wrote. So the secret to writing is to fucking write. Yeah. Whatever makes you write, if it's standing on your head, if it's tap dancing, if it's loud music, whatever makes you write good, whatever doesn't make you write bad. I just saved you time of reading all those books. <laughs> whatever makes you write good, whatever doesn't make you write bad. Yeah. I Same with music. That. Do you have a word count? I don't. And you generally write longhand on yellow legal pads? Sometimes, and sometimes I go right to the computer. Whatever works. Oh, I love that. Yeah, whatever I do. I love whatever. It. I'll tell you, so to give an idea, most of the time when my kids were growing up, for most of my life, I have written out of the house because mm -hmm. I had four kids. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you're, they would come in and bother you and all that stuff. So I would write in coffee shops, and I would use up a place. To me, it was like riding a horse, and then a horse dies, and you find a new horse. You don't worry about the horse. It's dead. You go find a new horse. So I would write in a Starbucks, and I'd be recognized too much, and I'd write this library, and, I'd, and then I would move over for a while. I wrote it at the supermarket, had a table next to the deli counter, and I'd come home smelling like olive oil every day. <laughs> but about three or four books ago, um, actually it was The Stranger, which is the one that's going to be the next mm -hmm. Netflix series, which will be out probably early 2020. Eight episodes on Netflix, there's my, my plug. Um, but I was writing it, and I took an Uber into New York City, and I felt all guilty about it. You know, it's the Jewish guilt thing. Oh, you know... I shouldn't spend the money, but then again, I'll be paying for parking if I drive in myself. So anyway, I sat in the back, and I started to write in the back of the Uber, and I wrote really well. So for three weeks, I took an Uber everywhere I went, and I finished the book in the back of the Uber. That's incredible. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. God, Michael Shabon had a, a thing that sort of blew my mind, you know, because I think of him, because he's so literary, yeah, right, obviously. Great. But um, I, was, I was asking him, and I know it's super annoying probably, to writers like how do you write do you write like right. as if that's the the answer oh right. yellow legal pads that's right. the answer but so with Shabon, he's like well yeah i write on my laptop but then also sometimes i write on an ipad and sometimes right. and the point right. is that there's that's not what it the medium is not the message in right. this case but if you ask God, yeah, yeah well, michael's I, I love michael one of the great guys in the world i know we both love him um 
but really, you know, there's a, it's a, it's an old saying, I said writers are a little bit like we of the Hebrew faith. If you ask 10 of them their opinion, they'll get 11 different answers. <laughs> so right, some writers have to have one room, mm-hmm. and they gotta be at that room at 6 in the morning, and they have to have a sharpened pencil, and you know, they have to have that. My personal method, and I'm not recommending it, because that way, whatever works for you, is that I don't have a method. My method is to keep changing up whatever's working, do it until it stops working, and then, you know, stop, and then try something else. Usually at the end of the book, I write much, much faster in the beginning of a book. So once I see the ending, I explode toward it. The last week or so when I'm writing, I talk to nobody. I don't change out of my pajamas. I grow a playoff beard like a hockey player. I barely shower. My kids will throw a banana in the room and run away from me. That kind of a thing. It becomes this weird, obsessive thing. So, you know, but I don't live that way all year round. So whatever works for you, again... If it's producing words on a page, good. If it's not producing words on a page, bad. It's pretty simple. Finally, I, I know you played a lot of sports, and yeah. I hear you talking about this, and I wonder, like, are these tricks that you kind of used playing, like, college basketball and stuff? Like, like you know, uh, I'm in a slump. I'd change everything up. Right. Like, I kind of love that. Like, I, I think I did. I mean, I never really thought about that before, but I remember... Like, I, I, I've always had bad vision, so I, yeah. I wore contact lenses as a kid and always on the basketball court. And when my shot went, I guess my sophomore year of college, I bought those kind of Kareem yeah. Jabbar goggles. And the first practice, I remember wearing them, the assistant coach comes, hey, look, it's Kareem Puff. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't wear them for long. <laughs> but yeah, or you try, like, athletes do this all the time, right? They wear the same socks for a while, but more of a superstitious yeah. thing. But yeah, anything that changes things up, it's always a good idea. I tried that with my kids too. It's like, life is often lived in the periphery. Like, don't worry so much what you're going to be doing next. If you're living your life and you're active in doing things, you're going to see things in the side view, in the side mirrors that are going to make you pull up and realize, maybe that's what I wanted to. You know, yeah. you could head toward being a, a novelist and all of a sudden decide, that's not really it, I'm a poet, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, or I meant to be in business, whatever. You don't have to be completely so focused on that one thing until you really spot it. Once you spot it and you go for it, then nothing usually stops you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate the generosity Thanks, of Rhett. all the wisdom you've shared, and this is so cool. Thank Thanks, you so man. much, Carlin. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Love it. All right. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. 
I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.